Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I'm in the Score Studios with fellow co-host Joe Wolfon after a bit of a holiday hiatus, a week and a half off maybe? A uh, bit of an illness hiatus, oh. yeah. Oh, I meant uh, more for the show. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well... But sure, uh, let's get into your illness too. <laughs> well, you know, we just been uh, we've been struggling to get back in the studio for a variety of reasons, from uh, scheduling conflicts to illnesses. So, it's good to finally be back on our feet. Last show of 2019, indeed. How was your Christmas? It was great. Yeah, spent it with family, some friends. It's a good time. Did you you were at the Raptors game? Yeah, I was. Yeah, it was uh, not great for <laughs> Toronto. A low first. Light? Yeah, not great for Toronto's first Christmas game. I mean, the atmosphere is great, but the game got out of hand pretty quickly. The Celtics kind of took it to them. Yeah, I mean, somewhat disappointing that after waiting, what was it, eighteen years between Christmas 18 games? Eighteen years between Christmas games and, and their first ever home game yeah. on Christmas, and they had to play Pat McCall like forty minutes because they were so banged up. Well, you know who's not playing Pat McCall 40 minutes right now is the team that we're going to spend most of the podcast talking about, and that's one of, I guess, the second hottest team in the NBA, and we'll get to the hottest team a little later in the show, but the team that we're going to be talking about today is the Utah Jazz, who have had a very interesting season in general and a very interesting stretch recently. The Jazz started a very pedestrian, I'd say, slightly above average, 13-11, and 11, which isn't a bad start, and for a team that traditionally starts off slow, isn't bad at all, but when you make the moves they made in the offseason, you trade for Mike Conley, when you sign Bojan Bogdanovich, and you look like one of the six to eight championship contenders, 13-11 and 11 is not a great place to start. In the last about three weeks, I guess 20 days, since December 11th, They've now won seven of eight. They are coming off a 13-point win at the Clippers in which both Kawhi Leonard and Paul George played. Interestingly enough, they actually haven't moved up the West standings at all during this time. They were sixth at 13 and 11. They're now sixth at 20 and 12. Yeah, which, again, just speaks to how stratified both conferences are right, right. now in that the, the top six teams in both conferences are great and anything below that is pretty much dreck. Yeah. But I do think the Jazz are interesting and worth talking about for a number of reasons. And I think maybe most of all is the fact that the, as big as the Bogdanovich deal for them was, the big deal of their summer was getting Mike Conley. Like that was the move that was supposed to take them to another level of contention. That on its own in a vacuum hasn't really accomplished that yet. And I know we're early. We're a third of the way through the season. But for context... As I take the mic off this stand, Dirk Nowitzki style. Mike Conley starts the year averaging 13.6 points and 4.6 assists on effective field goal percentage of 43.9. Not great. Last year, those numbers were 21.6 assists, 51% effective field goal percentage. Um, Again, they start 13 and 11. Mike Conley then misses five games with a hamstring injury. They start playing well. He comes back for one game, only plays 19 minutes, re-aggravates the hamstring injury. I think that was December 18th in a win at Orlando. He's missed another five games since, and the report at the time when he re-aggravated it was that he could be out weak, so we don't know how much longer he's going to be out. But it's not a stretch to say the team has been playing a lot better without him, but I don't know how much of that is Mike Conley being out and Joe Ingles being back in the starting lineup. I think maybe it's a little more column B than it is column A. Maybe there's a column C here, which is that their schedule during this stretch has been quite light. Uh they played well in a loss against Miami, but the games they've won outside of that Clippers game, which was admittedly really, really impressive showing. Um, and, you know, from the Clippers perspective, I think they just kind of laid a bit of an egg. Uh, both PG and Kawhi were pretty off in that game. And I do think the Jazz deserve some credit for that. But, you know, the games that they won 
previous to that are like they beat the Wolves, the Warriors, the Magic, the Hawks, the Hornets, yeah. and the Blazers. They're and, one and one against winning teams in this stretch. Yeah, and and then outside of the Wolves game, which they won by eleven, those are all single digit wins against a pretty uninspiring slate of competition. So I'm not ready to make any sweeping pronouncements about that stretch. And looking ahead to their next stretch of games, it, it's going to be a while, I think, before we actually learn anything substantive about this team with or without Mike Conley because their next slate of games are against the Pistons, Bulls, Magic, Pelicans, Knicks, Hornets, Wizards, Nets, Pelicans, and Kings. So like, we could look up and this team could be like 29 and 13 and we might still be somewhat unimpressed. I mean, even if you look at their win profile all season has been fairly uninspiring like their best win I think was that win against the Bucks when when Bogdanovich hit that buzzer beater they had beat the Clippers previously but neither Kawhi nor Paul George played in that game and aside from that they've basically just been getting shellacked by good teams and yes taking care of business against bad teams which is a really important thing for any playoff contender to do but I don't know I just think I haven't seen enough yet to to move this team out of the kind of disappointment category. And obviously the Conley thing is the biggest disappointment for this team so far. And it's disappointing that he hasn't really been able to build up any rhythm because of these injuries. But I spoke to Conley actually when, when the Jazz were here nice. in Toronto. And I, I sort of asked him about the transition going from playing with somebody in Marc Gasol who's a certified short roller, uh, whether it's as an elbow jump shooter uh, out of the short roll or, or just as a playmaker. And he he said that it's been really tough. And basically, you know, he, he hasn't been able to get the timing down with Gobert. He said he kept picking the ball up a lot earlier. Are you insinuating than, that Rudy Gobert is not a short roller? Like, <laughs> no, I mean, I think we know that he's not, Absolutely right? Like not. He, he's a straight dive man. Yeah. And I kind of thought coming into the season, like I figured there would be some adjustment, but I didn't think it would be such a difficult adjustment. I actually thought that that would help Conley a lot because if you think about where Conley thrives, like he's really good in those in-between spaces, right? He's historically a great floater shooter. Um, and I thought, you know, playing with somebody with Gobert's role gravity, if you think about playing against a team with like a drop coverage and what that big man is going to have to worry about as far as hanging back and taking away the lob to Gobert, you figure maybe that just opens up more space for Conley to get all the way to the rim, get those floaters off. And it just wasn't the case. He just hadn't figured out the timing. And unfortunately, he hasn't had a chance to get there because, uh, you know, his progress has been interrupted by this hamstring thing. I, I think, you know, the best version of the Jazz to me still obviously includes Mike Conley in the starting lineup. And you hope ultimately that we get to see that in him playing, you know, to the peak of his capabilities. Obviously, moving Ingles into the starting lineup has done something to Joe Ingles. Have you, have you seen his splits? It's absurd. So as a starter... 72% true shooting compared to 49% as a reserve. And the really strange thing about that is, you know, you think, look, this is, this is a guy who can be a playmaker. Obviously, he's best, I think, as a secondary or a tertiary playmaker. So you figure, oh, he's playing on the bench. He's probably just a little bit overburdened as a primary playmaker. But his usage rate is also higher as a starter, which maybe that leads you to believe that as a bench guy, he's just facing a little bit more defensive attention. And the Jazz bench has been a complete tire fire all year. And they just don't really have a lot of other offensive weapons off of the bench. And we can talk about the move they made to get Jordan Clarkson, which I think was a good one for them. But like, 
for whatever reason, Ingles moving into the starting lineup has completely revitalized him uh, after, yeah, just an absolutely dreadful start for him coming off of the bench. After I moronically picked him to win sixth man of the year, he just looks so much more comfortable playing off of Donovan Mitchell, playing alongside Gobert, and um, his shooting has really rounded back into form. And his defense as well. I thought he did a, a pretty bang-up job guarding Kawhi Leonard for most of that game last night or a couple nights ago. He's back to looking like an elite 3-and-D player with almost elite playmaking chops to go with it, right? Like who, which is the player he's been the last couple of years and has been so vital to their success the last couple of years. And that's why, look, I, I understand, I guess, the logic between what Quinn Snyder and the Jazz are trying to do in moving him to the bench and getting Royce O'Neal in the starting lineup because they probably saw, not probably, they saw it as a more balanced lineup. All of a sudden, you bring Bogdanovich in and the starting five just didn't look as defensively imposing as recent iterations of it have been. So you Which think, it okay, still doesn't, let's be honest. It still doesn't, but you throw Royce O'Neal in there instead of Joe Ingles and you're thinking, okay, we've balanced it. We, know, we think between Mike Conley and Rudy Gobert's rim running, Donovan Mitchell's creation... And Bogdanovich is shooting and scoring that we should have a capable functioning offense. Let's get some defense in there to help Gobert. Put Royce in there. Like, I do understand the logic of it. But at the end of the day, I still think your best five should be playing the most minutes together. And should be starting and, for the most part, finishing games together. And I don't think it's a secret that this team's best five is the combination of Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell, Joe Ingles, Bojan Bogdanovich, and Rudy Gobert. Now, the numbers don't bear that out yet because the sample sizes are small, but it, that best five lineup we're talking about has played actually not that small of a sample size, 117 minutes together, and they have a negative net rating, negative 0.9. If you replace Ingles with O'Neal in that lineup, they're plus 16.3. That's their most used lineup. If you take the best five and then replace Conley with O'Neal, their net rating is plus 20. That's actually their best lineup. So... I don't know how much of this is just early season noise and how much of it maybe is a pattern that's starting to develop or maybe, I don't know, maybe just the fit isn't going to be what we thought it was with Conley in there. I think it's a little bit of both, but I would wait until the schedule sort of balances itself out until Conley gets back and we kind of see if he can get his legs under him a bit, you know, before we, again, make any sweeping proclamations. It's funny because like the last couple of years, we've seen the Jazz get off to these really rough starts and then turn it on at the end of the season. And both of those seasons, that was schedule-related. They had brutal schedules to start the year, and then they really eased up toward the end of the year. We're seeing basically the reverse, I think, which is that the first half schedule for them is quite light, and the second half is going to be really, really tough. I think this could be a really good thing for them in that if they can ride out this stretch without Conley and then get him back and playing you know, to, to the best of his abilities later in the season then maybe they can weather that tough schedule in the second half. And having banked all these wins in the first half against lighter competition, they can really make a run at like a top four seed and go into the playoffs with with some momentum and hopefully make some noise. But for now, I just think... I mean, and like overall, if you look at their kind of peripheral numbers, they're not super impressive, right? Like they're 18th in offense and 10th in defense. 12th in net rating. So it's... You know, this is not the profile of a contending team right now, and it could be by season's end. Like, I had a lot of faith in this team, particularly as a regular season team coming into the year. Like, I thought they had a chance. I picked the Nuggets ultimately to finish with that number one seed in the West, but I thought that the Jazz had a chance to win, like, high 50s games. Because we've seen, like, they, this is a team that's built 
for the regular season because they are defensively elite, um, because they have depth, because they have multiple shooters and playmakers. And look, I mean, like the Bogdanovich addition has been everything that it was billed to be. Like he's been fantastic. And they have been an absolute train wreck without him on the floor. So when we say this team at full strength, I mean, I still have a lot of faith that they can rack up a ton of regular season wins. Um, I guess we'll see by season's end whether we think they're going to be viable as a playoff team. You had mentioned how easy their upcoming schedule is. Yeah, so it's seven in a row against losing teams, 10 of their next 12 against losing teams. They don't play a winning team again till January 14th, and even that, it's Brooklyn. They can go on a tear here and put themselves in good position. I mean, positioning-wise, it's not like they're in danger of falling out of the top six. They're going to finish top six, but, you know, big difference between three or four and five or six in the West and having to open on the road, mm-hmm. you know, against one of the LA teams or Denver. Yeah. Denver falls to three. I don't think they will, but yeah, it, it's they got to get it going here. the The problem is if you're looking to analyze them or evaluate them in in the contender status, as you mentioned, we're not really going to find that out anytime soon. And I think maybe that's. I'm starting to come to a point where look, I know they're good. I respect them as a team, but you look at their win profile. You look at the overall numbers, the advanced metrics, and I'm just starting to wonder if they are what we see them as right now, and that's a good team that's just not good enough to hang with the true contenders mm-hmm. on a night-to-night basis, let alone four times in seven games. Well, it just, like, to me, all depends on Conley and what he looks like when he comes back. Like, he, he, was, he has not been close to the Mike Conley that we got used to seeing coming into this year like at no point has he looked like that guy not for a single game in my opinion and if that is just who Mike Conley is at this point then no I don't think they really have a hope of of competing with the top dogs in the west if he's the Mike Conley that he was last year when he had arguably the best season of his career and him and Mitchell figure out the division of labor where they're sharing ball handling responsibilities and Conley finally you know clicks with Gobert and they have some pick and roll synergy and him and Mitchell are basically taking turns running that spread pick and roll like yeah then I have a lot of faith that they can at least make a series really tough on one of those top you know one of the LA teams essentially but barring that and I'm I still have some concerns about their wing defense as much as they they held PG and Kawhi in check a couple nights ago I, in a playoff series, I just still don't trust that core of wing defenders to to lock those guys down. But yeah, Royce I mean, O'Neal's like, been pretty good in that regard. Like he, Royce O'Neal's a like he's, a he's really like an solid defensive caliber wing. He's he's solid for sure. Again, and, and like their bench is is just a train wreck right now. Like Clarkson, I think they needed some scoring punch off the bench. They were getting nothing from Exum. Clarkson is better than Moutier, and I think he can stabilize some of those transitional lineups, but come playoff time like how useful is Jordan Clarkson really going to be and I thought the fact that and I know you mentioned it as like probably a good move for them too and I don't hate the move for them but I think the fact that it was widely accepted that trading for Jordan Clarkson was a good move for your team was probably an indication of the desperate situation facing your team on the offensive end like if you if bringing in Jordan Clarkson and his propensity to chuck and make bad decisions on offense was is worth it strictly because you need a guy that has some semblance of bucket getting ability off your bench, like that's probably a problem. It's definitely a problem. <laughs> like I don't think there's any doubt about that. And if you look at you know their starters' net ratings, they're all elite. Like they're not their starters aren't 
losing them games. Their their bench is getting slaughtered, and that is why I think they've been losing ground. So I do think it's interesting. You know, we met like we were going through the best five and the different iterations of their starting lineup. It does seem that I think they're going to go with that best five lineup when Conley gets back because in the one game that he returned and then re-aggravated the hamstring injury, they actually did start both him and Ingles and mm-hmm. moved O'Neal to the bench. I assume that's a sign that that is what they're going to roll with when Conley gets back. I would assume so as well, but maybe maybe they just got to hope that, that Ingles can sort of maintain his form while coming off of the bench because I do think... Like, yeah, O'Neal's a nice piece to have coming off the bench because he's been shooting the ball incredibly well. And like you said, he's a high-level defender. But I don't know. Like, there's still such a dearth of playmaking with that reserve unit that I feel like they might just be more comfortable having Ingles there, even if he struggled early in the season in that role. Like, I I, I don't know. It's, it's a tough spot. But I guess it depends, like, how long is Conley going to be out and what do they look like while he's out. But... um I don't know. Again, it's, it's just a tricky spot because I don't know how much we can learn about this team over the next few weeks. How would you quantify success for this team at this point? And has, has the needle moved in your mind? Because coming into the year, again, we named them as one of the eight legit contenders. Yeah. I think coming into the year, if someone told you the Jazz would maybe win high 40s, low 50s, and lose in the first or second round, you'd probably say that's disappointing given their offseason. And if it's going to be second round, it has to be like a really hard-fought series. Like, they can't get blitzed in the second round. Has the needle moved for you at all based on what you've seen? I think if they win a playoff series, that's a successful really? season. Really? Yeah. Maybe if they get their doors blown off in the second round, that's a letdown. Maybe they have to have like a somewhat competitive second round series. I just think we've seen this time and again, right? Teams that are built like the Jazz are built can rack up a lot of regular season wins, but it is just... And I'm not saying it's impossible. It definitely can happen we've seen it happen but it is really tough to close that gap in top end talent in a playoff series especially if Conley's not going to be that top, like exactly. close to that top exactly end and like the the jazz are interesting because gobert is you know like a top 20 maybe even a top 15 guy on his best day but he is a top 15 guy in a much different way than you know, LeBron or Anthony Davis or Kawhi or Paul George are like he, his value overwhelmingly comes at one end of the floor. And if you're talking about like a James Harden, whose value comes overwhelmingly at one end of the floor, I think the offense in that case is more important than the defense. And that, that is just the fundamental reality. Like defense matters a lot, but if you're going to pick one end of the floor where you can have an absolute superstar, I think you would pick offense over defense and there are a lot of luxuries to having a guy like Gobert the baseline for your defense is always going to be super high you put him in a playoff series especially against some of the guys that he's going to be going up against and like his limitations both and and I think it's a little bit overstated like he can get out on the floor and guard on the perimeter if he has to he's more valuable hanging back close to the basket but that doesn't mean that he isn't versatile as a defender he is I think more offensively like just his lack of of skill and like his lack of a post game like the way that that's exploitable for switching defenses like the way that they can neutralize him as an offensive threat that to me is the bigger issue and I think that's the problem more than anything that they've run into in the last couple post seasons they've run into the the Rockets just played him off the floor essentially who who just sort of switch everything and it's like okay what you know right now what is Gobert really bringing I think that's where they might get into some issues and obviously we've seen a jump from Mitchell right like He's been really, really good, but he's not. He, he is not a top fifteen player. Where like he's he, not 
best player on a title contending team good on the offensive end. He's right. good. Yeah. You know, it's hard to be that guy. Right. He's not that guy. Yeah. And, that, and that's why it's like the partnership with him and Mitchell, it was like by committee, those two guys you would hope would be good enough that they add up together to like an offensive superstar. And and that hasn't happened because Conley hasn't brought it yet. Yeah. So we'll have to wait and see. But right now, I'm not looking at this team and thinking like if they again if they win a series, I think that's a, a successful season. I don't really have high expectations when it comes to their ability to say make it to the conference finals or beyond. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. I mentioned the Jazz had won seven of eight, but they were actually only the second hottest team in the league, only second hottest team in the West. And that's because the Denver Nuggets, their Northwest Division rivals, have won nine out of their last 10. They're now up to 23 and nine. They're second in the West. And Nikola Jokic has absolutely come alive in the last few weeks after a pretty disappointing start to the season for him. His first 24 games of the year, 14.9 points. 6.2 assists, effective field percentage of 48.2. His last 13 games, 22.5 points, 7.6 assists, effective field goal percentage of 61.6. He looks like the Nikola Jokic of old, the Nikola Jokic that we saw, you know, proving himself in the playoffs last year. If he's back to being this guy, which, you know, we have no reason to believe that he isn't just back to being this guy because the sample size of him being this is a lot bigger than the sample size of him being the guy he was the first month of the season. If he's back to being this guy and the Nuggets are really starting to kind of find their groove, I think they're right back in the mix to be the number one seed as we both thought they could be. I know the Lakers jumped out to a great start to the season, but we're at a point now where, what are they, a game and a half back? Two games? Two and a half back. Two and a half back with more than half the season to go. I think the Nuggets are right kind of back in it. And I think that speaks to the fact that when they weren't playing well, they were still getting wins, which was important. And that's, I, I still kind of feel that way. Like they definitely have moments where they look like the, you know, regular season juggernaut that we expected them to be. But I still don't really get the sense that everything has clicked into place for this team just yet. I've still been somewhat disappointed by Jamal Murray at the offensive end of the floor, as much as I've touted his improved defense, which continues to be really impressive. And honestly, this whole team defensively continues to really impress me. Like they are just so locked in. They communicate really well. They really scramble effectively and they're still getting kind of lucky. Like their opponents are shooting 31% from three. And as much as I do give them some credit for that, even though, you know, historically the data will tell us that teams don't have a ton of control over how their opponents shoot from downtown. I do think that the way that the Nuggets are able to rotate, the pressure that they apply on the perimeter, the fact that they make teams work really hard for those shots can have an effect to the point that you know maybe they can suppress their opponent's shooting to a certain degree. Their opponents, I just don't think, are going to shoot 31% from deep. You know, By season's end, that's going to be up Should balance out, yeah. Like even, even the team that finishes like with the lowest opponent three-point percentage every year is usually it's like at 33 or 34%. So at 2 or 
over the course of a season is, is huge. Yeah. Um, but even so, like, you know, that percentage can come up and they can still have a top 10 defense. Um, and, and I believe in the defensive talent on this team as much as, you know, it, it can be tough, I think, to build an elite defense around Jokic in the middle. The, the, the guys they have around him are really effective at covering for his lack of foot speed. And I'm thinking first and foremost about Paul Millsap, uh, who has just been the anchor of that defense for the last two, three seasons now and has continued to be terrific this year. I think Jeremy Grant has been great, and he is so like fast and long. He closes space in such a hurry. Uh, Will Barton has been excellent. Gary Harris, Gary Harris has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, I mentioned... Murray, who's been much improved on that end of the floor. And I think a big thing for Denver lately, actually, is just like their bench, which was such a big part of their success last year and was really miserable to start this season, has gotten a lot better. Uh, and and depth it was always going to be a big thing, I think, for this team and, and that was going to have to carry them. And those guys have been a lot better lately. Um, Monty Morris has been better. Malik Beasley has been better. And Honestly, Mason Plumley, like nobody ever talks about Mason Plumley, and he's just so solid. You realize so, like, how far down you've gone on the list, and that I'm not that, calling you out on it. I'm saying that's how deep this team is. Like, right. think of the amount of names you've just and, listed, and that's exactly the reason why I felt like they could be the number one regular season team in the West, just because you know we're talking about like Jokic had this bumpy start to the season. Murray hasn't really taken that next step as an offensive player. They haven't really clicked to the point where you watch them and you're like oh wow the nuggets are really dominating right now like it's been kind of up and down and yet here they are at 23 and 9 and that's what that kind of depth can do for you and Plumley, like it's just he, he's just one of these unsung guys who you never really hear about him and he just goes about his business coming off of the bench as a playmaker as a backline defender makes very few mistakes excellent communicator they just have these guys who i think they can really rely on smart players um, veteran players, savvy players, guys who can make plays with the ball in their hands. They just have those guys up and down the roster. And I think that really, really helps when you're looking to pile up regular season wins. So that's where I'm at with Denver. Like I, you know, my opinion about them hasn't really changed. I kind of always expected Jokic to eventually play his way into shape and to be the guy that he was at the end of last season. Somewhat disappointing that it's taken this long. Um, and, you know, he, to me, still hasn't quite looked to be at the level he was at last year, which should maybe scare some teams because ultimately I do think he'll get there. And then, you know, he's starting to get there. Right. And we know, so we know we've established like this team has a high floor. How high can their ceiling go? And that's that's really the question I think that they're going to have to answer over, you know, the rest of the regular season. Yeah, I think this team is as good. I think they've built a team that is as good as you can ever ask for of a team that doesn't have a prototypical like number one alpha and I'm, that's not even a knock on Jokic because I love Jokic I think he's you know on his best days somewhere between the fifth to tenth best player in the world but you know offensively he's not the he's not the prototypical alpha on a championship team right he's not going to take 25 shots and average 25 to 30 a game that's just not his game so I think all things considered they've built a team that has maybe maxed out where you can go without one of those guys, but I'm still interested in seeing where they can go because I'm not ready to rule them out as a team that can make a deep run. Like we talked about the Jazz and you mentioned, you know, if they win around, it's considered a success. I don't think that's where the needle is for the Nuggets. You know, even though we both acknowledge that the two LA teams are in a different stratosphere and so technically we're saying the Nuggets aren't getting to the conference finals, 
I don't see that as success for them. I think, and, and I think internally for them too, that if you told them they're getting to the second round again, they're going to be very disappointed in that. It's just all going to come down to matchups at the end of the day. Matchups and, and seeding, man. They get yeah. the one seed, the team's going to go through Denver. And that's that should be a huge incentive for them to get that one seed. Like if they can stay out of the LA team's brackets and not have to face one of those teams until the conference finals, then they're laughing. Say, yeah, if they're the one seed and the LA teams finish 2-3, yeah. that is money. Which, I mean, the Clippers, I think, are fifth right now. So there's certainly no guarantee that that's going to happen. I do think, like, if there was a team outside of LA who you felt most confident in being able to swing an upset over one of those two teams, who do you think? Like, would it be the Rockets? Would it be the Nuggets? Would it be the Jazz? Like, which Definitely which not the Jazz. Okay. And out of the other top six, still, de- oh man, I was going to say definitely not the Mavericks, but then I don't know, man. Like Luca in a playoff series, that, I can't, I, I can't see it. With yeah, the no, I'd say definitely not the Jazz, probably not the Mavericks. So it'd be one of the Nuggets or the Rockets. And I think this kind of is where the argument comes in: of well, do you take the better built team, the best team out of the two, or you take the one with the best singular star in James Harden because it's a playoff? I, mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know. I I think I'd lean Houston based on everything we know about what happens in the playoffs. I think that's fair. I I might be leaning toward the Nuggets if you ask me right now. I guess ask me again at the end of the season, but I just Oh, we will. And I think you know, continuity might be an underrated element here, and I think that is a big part of what's driving their defensive success too and like the kind of mind meld that they have at the end of the floor and the way that they communicate and like I think, you know, continuity and familiarity has been a big part of that. And the fact that these guys are comfortable with each other and have played together now for a couple of years, you know, maybe maybe that is more of like a regular season boon than it is a playoff boon at the end of the day, because by the time you get to the playoffs, maybe every team is at least to a certain extent comfortable with one another and it's not as big an advantage. But uh, I don't know. I just watching this team play, it gives me a, a lot more confidence, I think, because I recognize just how comfortable they all look out there on the floor like there there's not a whole lot of overlap between their best players there's a clear sort of definition of role I think that can be really valuable somewhat similar to to how the Bucks were succeeding last year even though I mean you know you would say that they flopped in the playoffs so maybe that isn't <laughs> the best example of how that kind of thing can work but I think I think division of roles is really important and they're not being overlap and fit is really important like all of that stuff to me is going to come into play. And I think, again, we're not talking about this team making it out of the West or winning a championship even, but throw them in a series with one of those LA teams and something weird happens, a bounce here, a break there, an injury, whatever it happens to be. Like The Rockets to me are just like two all over the map, whereas I feel like the Nuggets have been, their baseline has been pretty steady. Other than the two LA teams, and I guess Milwaukee, is there any other team you would take over Denver in a best of seven series right now? Would you take Philly over them? I mean, you just said you'd probably take them over the Rockets right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, would I take Philly over them? Uh, I still kind of, I'm still pretty high on Philly as a playoff team. So am I on their playoff upside, absolutely. So I think I would. So the Nuggets, we're, we're, we're kind of saying the Nuggets are like the fifth best team from a playoff atmosphere, like championship. Yeah, perspective, which is 
good. Yeah. You know? Like it's very good. There's thirty teams in the league. They're fifth. Yeah. And this is where you get into like rings, you know? Right. And that's only four teams make it to the conference finals, right? And you're saying if they make it to the second round, that's probably a disappointing season. But, but I like, think it is, right? Like I, But if you're the fifth best team in the league, like that is I, that that is where you should be, is, is a second round out. I think logically this team having a fifty five plus win season and then making it to the second round of the playoffs in the West, like is logically a solid successful season but i'm just saying internally and you know if you're a nuggets fan mm-hmm. based on the fact that i think they do fancy themselves a contender I and think, they made the second round last year like i yeah. do think all that comes into play in terms of you know internal expectations and what you'll feel content with and satisfied with versus disappointed with i think that the way that it plays out is going to be really important in terms of dictating whether it was a success or failure. Like last year, the the bracket broke just right for them, right? And they really struggled to get through a pretty mediocre San Antonio team in the first round and then kind of crapped the bed against Portland. Like they were better than Portland in my opinion, especially, you know, that Blazers team playing without Nurkic. I just think that the Nuggets should have won that series. And I think they let themselves down. I mean, a game seven at home where they had been dominant all year and they couldn't close it out. And I think even though it was like their first time in the playoffs in six years or so and they had this feel-good, expectation-busting season, that still qualified as a disappointment to me because they should have won that series. This year, if they get to the second round and lose to like the Lakers or the Clippers... The, the manner in which they lose, I think, is going to be really important. And if, like, they go down swinging in a six- or seven-game series against one of those teams, I think, weirdly enough, even though they ended up in the same place that they ended up last year, I can kind of see how they might view that as progress still. And I think progress is, like, the important thing, right? And I think it's kind of the same for Utah, where it's like, if you get to the second round and it's just like, oh, it's clear right away that they have no hope, and they just get blown out again, and they get blown out in the same way that they've been getting blown out the last couple of years, where it's like, oh, no, this switching defense is taking away our intricate screening actions, and now it's like we just need somebody to bail us out by creating creating one-on-one, and guys can't hit shots. Then, That's what you got Bojan for. Well, like, yeah, and like the Jazz, we didn't even mention, but they're the number one three-point shooting team in the league right now, which is, you know, their flameouts in the playoffs the last couple of years have been because they couldn't hit an, an open shot to save their lives, so... That should help them, uh, certainly. Uh, and and Bojan has been shooting the absolute lights out. With with the Nuggets, it's like, I, I just I feel the same way. Like you want to see that they can compete, and you want to see that oh, like this team can actually handle the playoff stage, and like they're playing above their heads or at least up to their capabilities rather than playing below. Which is I think you know as good as Jokic himself was in his first playoff foray last year. The rest of the team to me was somewhat disappointing. So. I think you just want to see progress and you want to see that they, like, that they can hang and that they're building towards something rather than either plateauing or regressing. Yeah, I think the simple way to look at it is probably that for Utah and Denver, forget the rounds for a second. If you lose to anybody but one of the LA teams in the playoffs, they're probably seeing it as a disappointment. Yes, agreed. All right, well, staying in the West in general, I think one thing we should do before we get out of here is just touch on how kind of messed up the West playoff races this year and how different it is compared to recent years in the West. And honestly, compared to what the West has been for most of my life. Yeah. 
So you look at it right now, we know the two LA teams, Denver and Utah, Houston and Dallas, are going to make up the top six, unless, you know, barring catastrophe. The Thunder right now, maybe the league's most surprising team. They're seventh in the West. They're 17 and 15. They're coming off a win at Toronto. They've also won at Utah. They beat the Sixers. They've beaten the Clippers. The Thunder look, you know, if you look at their win profile and everything and the way Chris Paul has been playing and Shea Gildas Alexander looking like, you know, one of the most improved players in the league. I think Schroeder's been really good for them. I don't think he's been getting enough credit. He's um, a six-man candidate. He like, he's, he's been legitimately awesome. Yes, he's turned himself into, like, a solid player. I think a lot of people hated on him for, for kind of being not the brightest player in terms of his decisions on the offensive end. I think he's turned himself into, like, a really fine offensive player. I think maybe playing with Chris Paul has even helped in that regard. But I, I think, think that's helped Shea a lot, too. Yeah, absolutely. You get to play with the point guard, and even off the court, I'm sure – you know, has a lot of wisdom to impart on those two ball handlers. Steven Adams is going to do what he does. He's going to anchor the defense and grab a lot of offensive rebounds and yeah. get putback opportunities. I think Steven Adams, by the way, he, he got dumped on a lot at the start of the season because he, you know, frankly, wasn't playing all that well. And I heard a lot of people saying that basically he was cooked. And he has looked so much better over the last month or so. Like, he looks, he looks to be moving better. Like, he's just back to doing basically yeah. what he does. And in fairness to those people that did criticize Adams, I do think it was maybe premature to do that. But he also did look cooked for a lot of last season, too, if you remember. So, you yeah, know, the tail end of last season. Right. Year. It, it kind of looked like there was carryover there. and Maybe mm -hmm. that's where it was trending. But, yeah, as you mentioned, his credit, he's turned it around. I haven't even mentioned Gallo. Still an elite offensive player. He's actually been hurt the last week and a half. But, yeah, that... I think that core, and you look at their win profile and the numbers, they're 17 and 15. Based on the fact that it looks like the eighth seed's probably going to be a losing team this year, to me, the Thunder looked like a team that if they don't sell off as everyone expected they would do, they should make the playoffs based on everything I've seen. So then you get into this insane race for the eighth seed, where right now Portland, who's lost three in a row and is, I think, five or seven games under 500, is the eighth seed right now. Only. 2.5 games, sorry, three and a half games separate 8th place Portland from 14th place New Orleans. And you look at the start to the season the Pelicans have had. In any other year, forget going into January, they'd be buried by December. And in this season, still without Zion, as bad as their season has been, they're only three and a half games of the eight seed, out of the 8th seed. Minnesota, another perfect example. This team's lost 12 of 13 games. Like, I don't think enough people are talking about how much the Timberwolves have crapped all over themselves after that great start. And I know Towns has missed time too, but still, they should be better than this. Again, in most seasons, you lose 12 of 13 games. You're 11 and 20 after 31 games. You can't even spell playoffs in the Western Conference. This year, the Timberwolves managed to do all that. They're only two games back. They're only one back in the loss column of eight. Even a team like Memphis, I don't actually give them a shot at making the playoffs, but I don't think they expected to find themselves, you know, 30 games into the season within a couple games of a playoff spot. Really, the only team out of it is the Warriors. And even the Warriors, if we knew, say, for example, that Curry was going to be back sometime soon, and you told me they had to make up five games in this crap pile of a playoff race with more than half the season to go, I'd be like, uh -huh. ah, I don't know if they're out of it. I, I do think they're out of it because I don't think Steph's coming back anytime soon. Right. But. Well, I'd, I also think that those numbers, like, oh, they're three games back, they're five games back, tend to undersell how hard it can be to make up that amount of ground. And it's not just about how many games back you are. It's about how many teams are actually standing between you in a playoff spot. So for the Pelicans, who you said you know are what three and a half back, they still have to leapfrog six teams right. 
to get into eighth, which is like they don't need to just make up three and a half games on the Blazers, right? They have to make up that ground on the Blazers and the Spurs and the Suns and the Grizzlies and the Wolves. Like, I, so so I think you know that's going to take some doing, obviously. Um, I, I yeah, I mean, I guess it's just like hard to get really jacked up about this considering all these teams have been so underwhelming. I do think, you know, like one of these teams and maybe even two of them are going to like catch fire at some point in time and go on a run and get up near like 500 and solidify one of those playoff spots. That's, that's my feeling. Who's it going to be? If I had to guess, I would say the Blazers. Like I just think they're they, in the eight seed now. They have the most talent at the end of the day. And I don't know when Collins is due back. It might still be another month or so. Like, I, you know, he had to have surgery on his shoulder, right? So he might not be back until the very end of the year. If they, if they could find a way to get him back I think that would just make such a difference for them because you know their front court has just been decimated by injuries like they're really relying on Mello quite a lot and Mello's been solid honestly he's been way better than I expected him to be but again defensively like they're still 22nd in the league in defense and Mello's not really helping them at that end of the floor and so I don't know but I think you know look between Lillard and McCollum and even Whiteside honestly like I know he had a not great start to the year, but he's been pretty solid as of late. And he's not the pick and roll partner that I would choose for Dame Lillard, but he's been fine. Like he really has. And so, yeah, I I think they would be the team that I would pick. And like the Spurs can always rip off a run too. Like they, they always sort of do that when you least expect them to. And last season they got off to a rough start and then turned it on mid season and, you know, we wound up finishing with 48 wins. I don't think they're going to finish with 48 wins this season, but they still have like a lot of veteran know-how on that team and they have talent. Like if things start to come together for that team, then they could absolutely find themselves in the playoff mix. The Blazers, I think will ultimately get one of those eight spots. And I'm with you on the fact that, you know, being three and a half back if you're the Pelicans, but in 14th is very different than being three and a half back in ninth or 10th. But I, I will say that I'm rooting for complete chaos in the bottom half of the West especially. And I'm hoping that it kind of stays muddled like this. Because I would find it fascinating if yeah. like, you know, a team... Again, like New Orleans... Like the Pelicans started 7-23 and 23 in the Western Conference. And they're only three and a half games back of a playoff spot, right? After Have they won f- six games in a row? Four. Four in a row. They're 11-23. Oh, well. and 23 Yeah. And only three and a half back. Like... I would find it fascinating if a team like, you know, I threw Memphis out there. Like, Memphis is 10th in the West right now. I'd find it really interesting if they kind of like accidentally found themselves in the playoff race in early mid-March. Not necessarily because they've overachieved, but because the rest of the West has just kind of crapped the bed. And we still haven't really gotten any kind of update on the timetable for Zion's return, right? Like, that could tilt the balance in this race. And, um... I mean, they're, they're four straight wins. Blazers, Nuggets, Pacers, Rockets. That's a pretty impressive slate. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, maybe they can get back into the mix. I mean, the Grizzlies are kind of right there. Like, they're only, yeah, they're saying, only yeah, a the game and a half out of it. And, uh, you know, if I could pick which team I would want to jump into that spot, it would 100% be Memphis. Oh, my God. They're easily, easily the most entertaining team yeah. out, of the, out of that mix. Um, so, I, w- I would love to see that happen. And I think... It's really interesting with the Thunder, right? Like, they're such a swing team here because they can decide, you know what? Like, if we get an offer that's good enough, that's even remotely good enough, like, we're going to take it. It's not worth it for us to chase the seventh seed in a first-round exit. And so 
you know, regardless, if we get a good offer for Gallo, we're going to take it. If we get a good offer for Chris Paul, we're going to take it. And like, whatever happens, happens. Like we fall out of the playoff picture. So be it. Like we're planning for the future here. Or they could say, look, you know, like we just lost Chris Paul, sorry, uh, Russell Westbrook and Paul George. We have been a relevant team essentially for the last decade. The entirety of our existence in OKC, except for their first year. Yeah, like they've made the playoffs every year except for that one year when when Durant missed basically the entire season. And I could totally see them looking at that and saying, yeah, like, uh, you know, we don't want to sink to the bottom. You know, we play in a small market and our fan base is important to us and we got to maintain some level of interest and we're going for it, come what may. And I think, you know, they they could go any which way. And like if if they decide that they're going to pivot toward you know, tearing it down and selling off their pieces for whatever they can get, then there's another playoff spot that opens up. You made the point of saying that the Grizzlies are probably the team you most want to see hang in the race. Yeah. Like, Ja has no regard for life or limb on a random it's, Tuesday in Charlotte. It's scary. It's very scary. It's not great for his health. But imagine him in mid-April at Staples Center. We need to see it. Brandon Clark is also so good. Like, I, I love watching that dude play. And I know, like, it, defensively, he hasn't been quite up to snuff. But he's been one of the most efficient offensive players in all of basketball. It's unbelievable. So he's been the guy that everyone should have known he would be from an efficiency standpoint. Don't get me started on teams passing on Brandon Clark. I wrote about Brandon Clark going into the draft. I just... Before the draft and in writing that, I could not understand why he wasn't higher in mock drafts, why, you know, the intel and the reports weren't coming in, that he scouts were loving him or execs were loving him and why he wasn't like a top 10 lottery talent or seen as one when everything he did on the court showed that he was that kind of player. You just knew if you watched this guy, looked at the numbers, that you were going to plug him into the NBA and he was going to be a very efficient, uber smart basketball player yep. right away and and I don't know I, I just don't know what teams didn't see the the team that I'm most disappointed in is the Thunder like and if you look at that team and kind of how bright their future could be with the way that Shea is playing right now like they had Brandon Clark at number 21 and they traded down two spots to save a little bit of money against a luxury tax and and it's ridiculous because you don't have to pay the luxury tax right away. Like the accounting comes at the end of the season. They could have figured that out. And instead they decided to trade down so that they could take yet another non-shooting, rangy, extremely raw wing player. Which is all they do. Like that's all they take in the draft. And now they have just like an army of these guys and they don't know what to do with them. It's like, you know, between Baisley, the guy they took this year, Terrence Ferguson, Hamadou Diallo. Like I, I just thought going for the guy who's going to raise your floor and who actually gave them like what they needed. Like they needed more front court depth, I think. Although Nerlens Noel has been quite good for them, but like they could have Brandon Clark right now. And I think they'd be in pretty good shape looking toward the future with him and Gilgis Alexander. Have I not given you my uh, Sam Presti hot take before that when it comes to the draft, he's a bit of a fraud? <laughs> I Listen, I think he's a, I, I'm yeah. not saying he's a bad executive. <laughs> I think he's made good moves, asset management, trades, like, Overall, I think mm. he is an above-average executive. I think if you look at his draft history, early on, I think people kind of saw him as some like super smart draft guru, and I don't think that was necessarily the case. I think they were very fortunate to 
have the picks they had in the years they had them and assemble that once-in-a-lifetime collection of young talent. But if you look at his overall track record, Sam Presti does not draft well. Full stop. I just never know how much stock to put. Like, how much do you put on one person when it comes to the draft? You know, I think that's such well, a collaborative process. maybe it's scouting process. department too. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, it is Presti who's making the, the final call, right? And he hope. does seem to have a type. Like, he is, I think, overly fetishizing these long athletic wings who you know just require a ton of skill development and that's a lot to put on your player development staff and it's just it hasn't quite borne fruit so far i mean i actually like hamadou diallo i think he's got a chance to be a contributor but like i don't see any really star potential with any of the guys they've drafted over the last few years so yeah i'd agree with that. um whereas brandon clark i mean I don't know. I, I could say that he has star potential. Like Absolutely. His, his first season, his per 36s are 21.8 points, 9.2 rebounds, 2.4 assists, and 1.5 blocks. And he's got a 70% true shooting as a rookie. He's got a high floor and a high ceiling. Like yeah. What isn't there to like? So yeah, I think that would be great for Memphis. DeAnthony Melton is another guy who I think has been playing really, really solid minutes for them at that both ends of the floor. Solid under-the-radar pickup in that trade with Phoenix? Yeah, yeah. it was the, the Josh Jackson yeah. trade. And Josh Jackson is like floundering in the G League. Big and, surprise. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Melton's been like a, a high-end contributor for the Grizzlies. And like at the defensive end of the floor especially, like he is so long, has great hands. He's plucking three steals per 36 minutes so they're gonna be a super fun team i think for a long time if they could somehow get into the playoffs and this you know what was supposed to be a transitional year for them i think that'd be super exciting yeah that'd be unbelievable who's memphis's head coach uh taylor jenkins it is a lot of people honestly don't know that so i I was genuinely curious to see if we could come up with. well he he was with the buck staff last year he was yeah but i think he might be the most unknown head coach in the league on a team that like is like kind of surprising and kind of hanging around this race the last conference to conference note i'll add is when's the last time you've seen this if you look at the top eight in each conference the east seed has a better record than the West seed in seven of the eight cases. The only spot that the West has a better record is the seventh-seeded Thunder at 17 and 15 are better than the seventh-seeded Nets at 16 and 15. I've been saying, I think that the top six in the East is better than the top six in the West. And while I think that the best team is in the West, I I think, you know, if, if you're ranking those teams kind of collectively... On balance, uh, I, I think that top six in the East is better. And, and that's crazy to say. Like, we just haven't seen that in such a long time. Times are changing. They are indeed. And, I, you know, even looking ahead to, like, the All-Star game, where when it's, like, in so many of the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, you've been really reaching to try and find, like, a couple of guys to fill out the back end of the East All-Star roster. It'll be some tough omissions this it's year. It's going to be very, very tough this year. There are a lot of deserving guys. And... Um, I'm sure we'll get into that in the coming weeks. I'm pretty excited, I think, because there, there are a lot of guys who have some really interesting cases. Absolutely. I think we can end on this note. I mentioned times are changing. The one guy that continues to stand the test of time, happy 35th birthday to LeBron James today. Unbelievable. 35. <laughs> yeah. And I, it, it's so funny because, like, obviously the, there was that tweet that Kuzma's, uh, or was it was an Instagram post that Kuzma's yeah. trainer sent out. Yeah. About, you know, like comparing LeBron to to Kawhi, Kawhi. and like saying that Kawhi's skill set is sharper, basically. And like one of those guys is in the lab and one of them isn't like, man, if Kawhi Kuzma should fire his trainer or sorry, trainer agent. Who was it? Manager? It was his trainer. 
Fire him immediately. (laughs) No joke. Um, It's just like, whatever. Like, you can talk about the validity of, like, that comparison and, like, who is better than who right now. Like, whatever. We can have an argument about that. But, like, if, if Kawhi at 35 is doing what LeBron is doing right now, then come back to me and we'll talk. Like, this guy's in year 17. Like, it's just not the same calculus that goes into, like, what you work on, how you manage your body, how you manage your load, like, within games. It's, it's just a completely different ballgame. The fact that you're even still putting LeBron James at 35 with, like, 1.5 million NBA minutes on his body in the same conversation as the reigning finals MVP in his prime in his late 20s is a freaking testament to the fact that LeBron has been in the lab his entire career. And I think that's the thing that why I was saying, like, just fire your trainer immediately. The reason I was, like, so both perplexed and annoyed at this situation that the Lakers now find themselves in with Kuzma and LeBron is because if there's one thing you don't question LeBron James about, it's him being in the quote-unquote lab, whether it's working on his body, working on his game, like... Yes, he was freakishly naturally gifted. And sure, we can, you know, pick apart maybe certain parts of his focus last season. I'll I'll give you that. But don't ever question whether LeBron James is working on his game or in the lab or compare him to other players in that regard. Because, my God, where have you been the last <laughs> decade and a half, two decades? I just watch the Lakers play this year, right? Like, this, their roster should not make sense. Their parts do not fit together particularly seamlessly. Him and AD together are a fantastic fit. Danny Green is a perfect third option for those two guys, I think, the way that he spaces the floor and like can play defense. Like His skill set is perfect as far as meshing with those two guys. Outside of that three-man core, it's kind of a hodgepodge, and it should not work as well as it does, and it works entirely because of LeBron James's passing and his basketball IQ. He sets guys up so well, puts them in all the right spots, like his outlet passing, his entry passing, his lob passing, like his cross court lasers out of the pick and roll, like everything that this team is able to do flows directly from his playmaking. And he is spending so much time on the ball, has basically been a full time point guard this year, and is tying all of these disparate parts together. And it's unbelievably impressive for somebody in his 17th season and now his, you know, moving on to his 36th year of life to be doing what his, he is doing. The variety of ways LeBron James pulls this roster together and, and is kind of the glue that makes them the sum of their parts that they are is why, to me, as great as Anthony Davis is and as great as he's been this season and as close as their numbers are, all of those reasons are why LeBron James is still the unquestionable MVP of this team, of this Lakers team, and anyone yeah. who thinks otherwise just isn't paying attention. And their on-off numbers bear that out, too. Right. Like, if you if you take LeBron James off this team and think Anthony Davis is carrying them to anywhere near a record they have right now, you're just out to lunch. Sorry. Well, there you go. Happy birthday, LeBron. <laughs> As our gift to you, five minutes of glowing praise. For Pound the Rock, which will return in the year 2020. And for Joe Wolfon. I'm Joseph Kishara.